0: Imagine, demand, and build a world transformed.
1: Right. Um, uh, Welcome to everybody who's joining us. My name is Rivka and I'm a campaigner at War on Want and I'm very honored and pleased uh, to be facilitating this discussion today, Uh, Palestine and Kashmir, a tale of two occupations. Um, So before we get into the topic at hand, there are a few general announcements that I want to make about how this session is going to be run. Um, The first is just about sort of rules of engagement. Obviously, we want everyone to feel welcome in, in this space and for everyone's voices to be heard. So please do bear this in mind when you're engaging with chat or comment boxes during the sessions. Don't use inappropriate, rude or abusive language. Don't spam. Uh, You all know how it works. Um, uh, uh, A topic about Otter. So there's a live transcription service that's being used for this session called Otter. And attendees using this will have to follow a link and open the transcript as a separate uh, window. Um, And I think that's gonna come up in the uh, comments box in a second. Um, So there is live transcription for this session. Um, And then the last thing to say is that um, TWT is free for everyone, but it's made possible by contributions of its supporters. So if you are able to consider supporting TWT, um, there's a link, uh, uh, theworldtransform.org slash support. And I think that's gonna come up for you to see also. And please do um, click on that and help sustain the incredibly important work that TWT does all year round. Um, So, if that's clear and understood by everyone, I think we can jump into the topic at hand today. Um, So, just by way of introducing our discussion about Palestine and Kashmir, we're talking today about two situations of very intense military occupation, and while both are decades old, Uh, They've been more recently in the news uh, um, this year because of an intense ramping up of the occupations and flagrantly illegal steps by the occupation regimes of of India and Israel and moves towards increased and formalized annexation and land grabs. Um, So today in the discussion we're going to be giving each situation its own dedicated time, but I think looking at these situations side by side is really productive. Uh, And there are four points of parallel that I want to just highlight to begin with, and I think all of our speakers are going to uh, refer to some of these points. Um, The first one, uh, is just the lived reality of occupation and militarized repression faced by the people of Kashmir and Palestine, and we'll hear about that from, from the speakers. Um, the second point of parallel is a legacy of British colonial responsibility and current complicity, and, and that's especially but not limited to the UK arms trade both with with India and Israel that enables these occupations. Um, the the third parallel point is the ideological connections between the occupying forces, which I think is an area that that deserves a lot of, of um, focus and attention. And lastly, um, and perhaps most importantly for our discussion today, um, there's a parallel point in the history and current manifestations of of people's struggles for liberation and for self determination, as well as solidarity with those struggles. So I'm looking forward to hearing from our speakers today um, about. Uh, especially that last point, how can people here in the UK um, show solidarity, effective solidarity with these struggles? Um, So uh, we're joined by a very, very distinguished panel today. I'm very pleased uh, to be um, introducing them. They're going to be speaking on the current situations on the ground, but also on those solidarity movements that I just referred to and what we can do here in the UK. Um, so each speaker is going to speak for about 15 minutes, and then we'll have uh, plenty of time for Q&A at the end, and I'll be looking forward to hearing um, from those who are who are watching and participating online. Uh, so our first speaker is Dr. Yara Hawari. Uh, she is the Senior Palestine Policy Fellow of al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, uh, she's completed her PhD in Middle East politics at the University of of Exeter, and she is a frequent commentator um, on many um, broadcast and and online news sites. Um, so I'm very uh, pleased to welcome Yara, and I'm going to pass it uh, over to you now.
2: Hi, Rivka, and thanks for that introduction, and thank you to to everyone for attending this, and to the World Transformed for for putting on this incredibly important session. Um, I'm going to give an overview of of what's going on on the ground um, in Palestine uh, right now and what are the the sort of the key issues really facing the the Palestinian people. Now, at the start of the lockdown, um, people in Palestine were commentating that the world now finally understood what life was like for many of them. And this was particularly the case in the West Bank and Gaza, where curfews, closures of uh, public spaces, the inability or difficulty in traveling, this lingering anxiety over perpetual uncertainty are really common features of Palestinian life. And I'm sure that was the case for many Kashmiris as well. And I'm sure my colleagues on this panel will touch upon this. This new reality this very dystopic reality that the world has found themselves in um, has many characteristics of daily life that palestinians have been suffering from as a result of nearly a set century of ongoing settler colonialism um, and i think it's perhaps pertinent here to define what settler colonial colonialism is and to problematize the the title of this session um, which is uh palestine and kashmir tale of two occupations um settler colonialism is perhaps a, a much better tool much better framework than military occupation because it defines it as a continuous structure of erasure it's a structure that seeks to eliminate and replace indigenous people palestinians have been calling this the uh, nakba al mustamira the ongoing nakba which refers to um 1948, the catastrophe when Palestine was wiped off the map and replaced with the State of Israel. And I think many of you who are watching this, you know uh, many of the other facets of this continuous structure. Um, Ghettoization, displacement, incarceration, bombardments, political repression. And and you're all familiar with these images of of checkpoints, soldiers, walls, stone throwing. And these are also many images that we also see from Kashmir. So rather than repeat this, I, I really want to give an overview of, of what Palestinians in Palestine have been going through much more recently, and particularly from since the start of the pandemic. And I also want to touch upon some of the, the political manoeuvrings that have been going on tangentially, because I think it really um, encapsulates what it means to be Palestinian in Palestine. Now, while there are a lot of parallels between the situation in Palestine and, and that in other countries around the world who are really struggling to get COVID infections um, under control, the context of this harsh settler colonial regime really represents a very formidable challenge. It's an absolute regime of control, and it has direct and detrimental effects, not only on Palestinian access to health care, but also on the very quality of the care itself. Now, it's worth noting here that under international law, as a recognised occupying power in the West Bank and Gaza, Israel is responsible for making sure that Palestinians have the fullest extent of medical care. Now, not only does it fail to do so, it also makes it actively difficult for Palestinians to do so on their own. Now, um, I'm going to briefly address uh, the challenges that Palestinians have been facing um, vis-à-vis the pandemic um, in each of their social geographic fragments um, within historic Palestine, starting with the West Bank and Gaza who, who are confronting COVID-19 from a reality of military occupation. Um, and this really weakens the ability of the Palestinian authorities and the people to, respective, uh, to uh, respond effectively to the deadly virus. We're talking about a 53-year-old military occupation in the West Bank and Gaza, which has seriously depleted medical capabilities um, and this has included the, the denial of medical supplies and equipment. Um, for example, uh, treatments like chemotherapy and radiotherapy um, are severely restricted, making it basically impossible to treat cancer patients in Gaza, um, whereas in the West Bank, it's, it's very limited. Uh, and in such cases like this, Palestinians are at the mercy of the Israeli authorities who determined if they can get permits uh, for the treatment that they need. The, the military occupation in the West Bank and Gaza um, has also led to attacks on medical facilities, staff and patients, and in, in Gaza in particular, the, the series of bombardments um, over um, the, the last decade have really, really depleted the hospitals there and the medical uh, and health infrastructure. Now, in terms of COVID, as it stands, there are only 255 intensive care beds in the West Bank for a population of three million. And in Gaza, there are only 120 for a population of 2 million. In total, between the West Bank and Gaza, there are 6,440 hospital beds. So, in, in addition to all of this, we've also seen the Israeli regime um, engaged in much more insidious attacks against uh, Palestinian attempts to confront the virus. We've seen clinics being, uh, COVID 19 clinics being destroyed, such as one in the Jordan Valley uh, and another one much later in Hebron. Um, which was the hardest hit governor um, in the West Bank. Now, in East Jerusalem, um, they've faced similar challenges. East Jerusalem and its Palestinian residents have been uh, subjected to systematic neglect since it was occupied in, in 67 and then it was later illegally annexed. Um, the Palestinian Health Ministry is not permitted access to East Jerusalem, and so Palestinians have to rely on the Israeli regime to provide services and funds, which it does so inadequately um, because it diverts most of its resources to Jewish Israeli citizens in the city. And this has led to chronic underfunding, which has resulted in shortages in, in beds, equipments and staff. Now, the three main hospitals um, in East Jerusalem, uh, Al-Maqasid, Augusta Victoria and St. Joseph, um, there are only 22 ventilators and 62 beds for COVID patients between the three of them. And this situation of these hospitals in East Jerusalem has really been exasperated by the Trump administration's decision to cut $25 million in funding um, to the hospitals in 2018. And um, This has really left them on the edge of financial collapse. And similarly, the Israeli regime has also attacked Palestinian efforts in East Jerusalem are to confront the virus, such as shutting down clinics and arresting volunteers, attempting to, to distribute supplies um, to impoverished communities. Now, the Palestinian citizens of Israel are similarly neglected um, and marginalized by the Israeli regime. They live in crowded localities and they live in enclaves that, for the most part, are separated and segregated from Jewish-Israeli populations. This segregation allows the Israeli regime to deprive the Palestinian population in Israel of adequate services. Now, this is a population of 2 million people, 20% of the population of Israel. And of that 2 million, 47% of that community live under the poverty threshold. Uh, So they face even more precarity and insecurity in a public health crisis such as this. Now. I've sort of whizzed through all this because I am um, prepared quite a lot for such a short amount of time. But on top of all of this, on top of the pandemic, Palestinians have also been dealing with ongoing political manoeuvrings um, that have been that are attempting to entrench the Israeli project of taking as much Palestinian land as possible with as little Palestinians as possible. Now, in particular, we saw this whole discussion around annexation that came up this year. Annexation is very much an international law term and it refers to when an occupying power extends its sovereignty over an occupied territory. Practically speaking, this is the theft of land. It's total control over it and its resources and it usually involves the displacement of large uh, swaths of indigenous or native populations. Um, Now, when the mainstream media is talking about annexation, it's usually only referring to the West Bank and Gaza, despite the fact that the theft of Palestinian land happens across the Green Line. Now, for a lot of Palestinians who live this reality, it's really all legal semantics. Israel essentially controls and has applied sovereignty over all of the territory of what was once historic Palestine, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. But this year, it was uh, a topic of interest in the media and, and among politicians because the new Israeli unity government between Netanyahu and his and his rival Benny Gantz signed off on official de jure annexation, and they set the date of July the first um, as a date in which they would put it forward towards the Knesset, to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, for a vote. Now, throughout this period, we saw a lot of um, condemnations from international actors um, about you know annexation plans. Uh, and for the most part, these were very lukewarm uh, condemnations, in particular from the European Union. There were no absolutely no threats um, of sanctions, and there was uh, no talk of any kind of clear repercussions. So July 1st came and went, and the international community breathed this huge sigh of relief, uh, saying, you know, thank God nothing had happened. Uh, and the lead up to it was this huge cres- crescendo, and everyone was begging Netanyahu, left, right and centre not to do it. Not because they were concerned about Palestine, about the loss of Palestinian land and the violation of Palestinian rights, but I think because the Jewish annexation would be too difficult to defend, and it wouldn't tarnish the international community, um, and it would tarnish the international community and the international legal regime because they wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Um, but it's clear to many, even though they won't admit it, that Netanyahu will continue to pursue jury annexation, most likely in a staggered uh, and staged way, uh, starting with uh, the main settlement blocks around Jerusalem, and then uh, later sort of larger areas of the Jordan Valley. Um, for Palestinians, uh, annexation is, a, is, for many Palestinians, annexation is a non-conversation. It's happened. It's, um, it's now a discussion whether it's going to be formalized or, or not. Now, the recent uh, Israel-UAE agreement, which agrees upon the normalization of relations between the two countries, um, and, and it includes an agreement to halt annexation, is being hailed by many um, as something that's very historic. You know, firstly, uh, you know, deals uh, and conversations and diplomatic engagement between Israel and a lot of the, the Arab Gulf countries is not anything particularly new. And I think that has to be stressed. This is a continuation and a formalization of something that has been going on for years. And you can trace this even more recently on social media by the increased communication and official pages promoting dialogue between the two countries. Now, there's a very, uh, secondly, there's a very important point about uh, this agreement that has to be noted. There's an English uh, version of the joint communique between the UAE, Israel, and the U.S. Um, and And in it, it said that the agreement has, and I quote, led to the suspension of Israel's plans to extend its sovereignty. In the Arabic version, it says, the agreement has led to Israel's plans to annex Palestinian lands being stopped. So we see a difference here of suspension versus stopped. Now, we've seen these translation issues many times before, in which agreements hold entirely different meanings in in different languages, particularly in British colonial correspondence where these false promises of sovereignty were made to to Arabs. But we've also seen this lie of halting Israeli expansionism throughout the peace process history. Since Israel's occupation of the West Bank, it has never ceased um, to build settlements. And this is a project, uh, may I remind you all, that was started in 1967 and pioneered by an Israeli Labor government. So think about that when you're really trying to form alliances with the the so-called Israeli left. Now, I want to end here um, because I've been talking for quite some time uh, with some concluding thoughts. I think what we're seeing today on the ground of Palestine is a continuation of the settler colonial policy of aggressive expansionism. But I don't want to give the impression that it's the same old, same old. It is getting worse. It's becoming more entrenched. And every week I'm seeing with my own eyes new colonial infrastructure that makes it really hard to contemplate uh, a decolonial future, a liberated future for Palestinians. And I think we are at a critical juncture in Palestine and also in, um, in many places across the world. I think importantly, though, when I think about Palestine, I try to think about it in a global context. What's happening in Palestine is not necessarily unique and it's connected to what's happening elsewhere in the world. These structures of oppression, these powers, they're all connected and they all share um, so many links uh, and so much communication with each other. And I think this is important for us to remember. As these structures of power um, are communicating and working together to oppress us, we have to work together um, to challenge that oppression. Thank
0: you.
1: Great. Thank you very much, uh, Yara, and such an important point to end on there. I appreciate that. Um, And a lot brought up in in your presentation that I hope we can take up in the question and answer period, too. in the meantime, I'm going to introduce our next uh, speaker, um, which is uh, Ben Jamal, who's the director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, a very important solidarity uh, organization here in the UK. And he's also a member of the British-Palestinian Policy Forum. Uh, so Ben, the floor is yours.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Rivka. And um, I want to begin by thanking uh, the World Transformed for- putting on this important event. And I'm delighted to be here in particular uh, alongside our brothers and sisters campaigning for the rights of the Kashmiri people. Um, I've been asked in the time allotted to say something about, uh, in answer to the question, how do we practice solidarity with the Palestinian people? uh, But also how do we address, respond to and resist the attempts um, to suppress uh, activism uh, for Palestine? Uh, a process that is happening not just here here in the UK but globally. Um, I want to begin just by picking up uh, on one of the points Yara made uh, in terms of the the context and the dynamics and the discussion around uh, annexation and I would say that when Israel did announce uh, earlier this year its plans to proceed um, with formal de de jure uh, annexation of huge swathes of the West Bank uh, in accordance with a map outlined within uh, the Trump plan, the so-called deal of the century, uh, that did have some impact uh, in shifting some aspects of mainstream uh, political discourse. We saw, for example, here in the UK, some of you will recall, um, a letter signed by about 150 MPs and peers, and not all of them uh, you would describe as the usual suspects, calling for sanctions if Israel proceeded with annexation. And that had some significance because calls for sanctions have largely uh, been framed uh, and presented as outside legitimate mainstream political discourse when it comes uh, to Israel. And uh, this was a result of the fact that the threat of annexation uh, served to remove the illusion uh, which has created the rationale for passivity on the part of the international community for decades. And this is the illusion that Israel's occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza is temporary, that there is a willingness, a desire within the Israeli political mainstream to end this occupation and a pathway to achieving that uh, through a peace process. And as Yara said, although it is clear to anyone who's had their eyes and ears open that Israel's intention has always been to establish a greater Israel, uh, encompassing, as she said, Maximum land and minimum uh, Palestinians. The threat of annexation, in a sense, made it impossible to sustain uh, this illusion, this conjurer's distraction technique provided by uh, the Oslo process. The risk, of course, was that if there were any um, perception that Israel was rolling back on its attention to annex, then mainstream political discourse would return to a narrative of this peace process, of uh, the disallowing of calls for sanctions or measures uh, to hold Israel uh, accountable. And attention would turn away to the reality, from the reality that Yara has just presented of an ongoing project of settler colonialism, of the establishment of a structure of control that meets the definition of an apartheid state and of a de facto annexation. And we have seen that um, to a large degree, uh, that risk being enacted in the reaction uh, to the UAE deal that uh, Trump has brokered between Israel and the UAE, which has been welcomed by the Labour Party, by the UK government, by most Western governments, by the UN, by the EU, and the frame of that welcome has been uh, that this has put on hold um, or even um, represents a rolling back of Israel's intention to move to de jure annexation. That's a myth, as Yara has outlined, Uh, In the press conference immediately after the deal was announced, Netanyahu said this, and I quote, there is no change to my plan to extend sovereignty, our sovereignty in Judea and Samaria in full coordination with the United States. Uh, When he talks of Judea and Samaria, he's talking, of course, about the West Bank. So this does, as Yara said, represent a moment of danger, a moment of urgency, the Trump plan is founded on a framework of creating an alliance between Israel and Arab states that would lead to the normalization of their relations with Israel and the sidelining of the Palestinian people and their struggle for the realization of their core collective rights. Now when Trump's deal was announced, when it was initially announced, Palestinian civil society, more than 100 organizations, came together and issued a statement calling for renewed global solidarity to oppose this deal, which they described, and I quote, as nothing less than an attempt to liquidate the Palestinian cause entirely. And that call for solidarity begins as a call for understanding and as a call for empathy. Understanding, first first of all, to recognize the truth of the injustice being visited on the Palestinian people and the dynamics and shape of that injustice but secondly empathy it calls for us to care about this to recognize our common humanity and to understand that an injury or an harm or an injustice to you is an injustice to me and an injustice to everyone whether you are a black south african a black american a Kashmiri, or indeed a palestinian but solidarity of course calls us beyond understanding beyond empathy to action and the Palestinian people, when reasserting their call for solidarity, have also given us a guide to the action that they require of us. They launched in 2005, a call for a global campaign of boycott, divestment and sanctions until Israel ended its violations of the core collective rights of the Palestinian people. And in renewing that call, for solidarity in the face of the Trump deal. They renewed the call for support for that campaign and for that movement and indeed they called for a global ramping up of such activism. So to the question posed to me uh, that I've been asked to address how do we practice solidarity with Palestinians, the simple answer I give is that we first educate and inform ourselves and others through events like this. But then we act and we act in the way that the oppressed people have asked us to to act. We follow their lead and we do so because their ask also calls us to act justly in accordance with respect for international law, in accordance with respect to conventions on human rights and in full accordance with anti-racist principles. And we recognize that not to do so, Makes us complicit. Once we understand the situation as being one of justice and injustice, then we are obliged to follow the principles that Desmond Tutu articulated when he called for solidarity with the struggle of black South Africans and support for the South African led campaign for BDS in the 70s and 80s. Remember what he said in a situation of justice and injustice, if you are neutral, then you are on the side of the oppressor. And this was a message I heard consistently echoed uh, by Omar Barghouti, the co-founder of the BDS movement earlier this year in pre-COVID days, when he came to London and I accompanied him uh, to a number of meetings at which he was asked the same question to which he gave the same consistent reply. What should we do? What can we do to show solidarity with you in your struggle? And his answer was consistent, end your complicity. So when UK local government pension schemes invest as they do over three and a half billion pounds in companies that support the infrastructure of Israel's illegal occupation and illegal settlement building and supply weapons and technology to the Israeli military that are used on Palestinian civilians in the commission of war crimes then they are complicit which is why we call for a program of divestment when uk universities invest as they do over 450 million pounds in complicit companies then they become complicit which is why we support students on campus in their campaigns for their universities to divest and when the uk government in the last three years alone grants export licenses worth more than four hundred million pounds of for the export of arms and military technology to Israel, then they are complicit. And if knowing this, we do not take action, if we do not challenge that complicity, then at an individual moral level, uh, we too become complicit. Israel can only sustain its regime of oppression if it receives diplomatic political, and financial support from complicit companies, complicit institutions, and corporations. And consequently, Israel knows that the biggest strategic threat to its ability to sustain its regime of oppression is becoming diplomatically, politically, and financially isolated. That's not just my analysis or the analysis of people like me. Those are the conclusions of the reo Institute, an influential Israeli think tank, Uh, which in 2010 produced a report in which it identified the BDS movement as the greatest strategic threat to Israel. Uh, This narrative and understanding was echoed by Benjamin Netanyahu when in 2015 he tasked an entire ministry, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, with the remit of coordinating global action to delegitimize and suppress the BDS movement. And the actions taken in this campaign include the use of lawfare, the efforts to have laws introduced globally uh, to suppress, criminalise or prescribe BDS action. We've seen the law used in this way in the United States. More than 20 US states have introduced such laws. We've seen it introduced in France, in Germany and elsewhere. Here in the UK, the UK government made its first attempt to introduce such law when in 2017, it attached regulations to pensions law that would prevent local government pension schemes from divesting from complicit companies. And the Palestine Solidarity Campaign challenged that in the courts. And earlier this year, we won a victory when the Supreme Court ruled in our favor. However, uh, perhaps, in fact, almost certainly in anticipation of that victory, uh, the incoming Boris Johnson government included within its Queen Speech an intention to introduce a new anti-BDS law, a law that would prevent public bodies from divesting or not procuring from companies complicit in violations of international law in any situation where the government itself has not introduced sanctions. And it's worth noting uh, that such a policy would have made any would have made illegitimate any action by public bodies in the 1970s and 80s uh, to divest from companies complicit in sustaining South African apartheid, because, of course, the UK government never itself uh, employed sanctions against South Africa. And PSC is working with a range of civil society organisations to oppose this law. Now, part of the rationale used for introducing such laws and an underpinning narrative used to seek to de- delegitimize a BDS and wider activism for Palestine is of course the argument that BDS is inherently anti-Semitic. Uh, and we have to recognise that a tool in this process has been a formal redefinition of anti-Semitism and the promotion and promulgation of a particular definition, the IHRA definition, which conflates certain types of narratives and discourse about Israel with anti-Semitic discourse. Um, and so for example, there there are examples which are attached to the definition 11 examples, some of which have been used, uh, for example, to say that calling for BDS is inherently anti-Semitic because you are holding Israel uh, to a standard to which you do not hold other countries, uh, unless you are simultaneously putting as much energy into calling for boycott, divestment and sanctions against other countries. If you're focusing on Israel, then you are inherently anti-Semitic. And by definition, uh, that makes an organization like PSC, which focuses its attention on the rights deprivations being visited on Palestinians, an inherently anti-Semitic organization. Uh, Other examples are used to suggest that to describe any of the laws, policies, um, or acts of the Israeli government as racist in nature, or indeed to describe Israel as a state that meets the legal definition of apartheid is inherently anti-semitic. That's why the definition has been opposed by numerous bodies including the Institute for Race Relations, academic experts on anti-semitism, leading human rights, lawyers. Uh, It's been opposed on the basis that it prevents or seeks to prevent Palestinians bringing the facts of their dispossession and oppression into the public domain, that it threatens the freedom of expression of all of us, but also undermines a consistent anti-racist politics because one cannot be a consistent anti-racist unless you tackle all forms of anti-racism, all forms of racism, including ideologies of ethno-nationalism and the policies and laws that flow for them. So practicing solidarity for the Palestinian people in conclusion now involves us in actively resisting attempts to stifle that opposition, uh, that solidarity, including opposing pernicious laws, such as the one that the government intends to introduce here in the UK, while simultaneously we refuse to be silenced and we continue to build campaigns, including BDS campaigns. And we do that because we are internationalists. And that means we always stand on the side of the oppressed and never the oppressor. We do that because we are anti-racists And as I've said, we recognize that a consistent anti-racism calls upon us to resist all doctrines and policies of um, ethno-nationalism and their manifestations through institutionalized state racism, particularly in its most egregious form, that of apartheid. And we do this because we are Democrats. And we recognize that the freedom of expression, the ability to argue political points and call for others to take action is the glue of democracy. That is what is asked of us, of the Palestinian people. They deserve nothing less than that we continue to stand in solidarity with them, to campaign alongside them until they enjoy what is their birthright, freedom, justice, and equality in their historic homeland.
1: Thank you so much, Ben. Such an important reminder of the the principles of solidarity and and um and the threats to the solidarity that we have um, now. And I'm sure there will be some some good questions uh, in the question and answer period about how how m- what more we can do to face that. Um, so now we're going to um, to switch focus a bit um, and look at the situation of of Kashmir. Um, our next speaker is Insha Malik, an assistant professor at Cardan University and author of, of Muslim Women Agency and Resistance Politics The Case of Kashmir. So, obviously, um, someone with great expertise in this topic, and I'm really um, pleased to, to um, introduce you, Insha, and, and give you the floor.
0: Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for giving this opportunity to be able to discuss what's happening in Kashmir right now. Um, I think what I want to speak to in this conversation is more to do with the disappearance of Kashmiris from the international discourse about Kashmir. um, And consistently kind of try to speak back at how international politics positions Kashmiris. Um, with uh, either looking at them as a bilateral issue, an issue that needs to be sorted out between India and Pakistan, and never really about the agency in the structure within which Kashmiris have grown up. And I, being one such Kashmiri who grew up in Kashmir and who's seen um, the oppression and 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 now the, of course, annexation of Kashmir by Indian forces, um, it's pertinent to even ask the question that okay, what are who are Kashmiris and what are they doing? And what are what is their agency? Are they different? Are they same? Um, and in 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 the solidarity movements per se, I guess it becomes a sort of a you know consistent comparison between Palestine and Kashmir. And I just I as much as I speak to and I reflect back at Palestine and understand the situation, which is really grave and horrible uh, to say the least. But at the same time, looking at Kashmir and its own intricacy, it's very much important for those who are positioning themselves to speak for Kashmir uh, at this point. Um, First first and foremost, uh, for the last 70 years of this conflict, we have not seen Kashmiris actively representing themselves or their cause internationally, and possibly for the reason that there are uh, international discourses and also a sort of consensus that it's a matter that India and Pakistan can resolve by, through bilateral talks. And it's, uh, it's very difficult to pursue that line of thinking because when Kashmiris speak to India, they say, we don't, you don't have an issue, like your issue is non-existent. So basically the ultimate dehumanization, and if, you look at, if we look back at uh, what happened last August, it's a complete irreverence of what Kashmiris want or what Kashmiris demand. Um, And somehow passing laws and passing uh, different sorts of um, processes that completely neglect what Kashmiris are thinking and their agency as human beings. So what I consider as a perfect dehumanization process. Um, And per se, when, when the question of Kashmiris arises, there's always like saying, oh, they are either Muslims who have come from outside or somehow the settler colonialism um, works in a way that it can be justified that okay they can go to other neighboring Muslim countries they don't have to necessarily insist on their Kashmiri identity and and continue to demand um, demand justice in this case um, for that particular reason to actually then locate Kashmiris outside of the discourses the international discourses between India and Pakistan where um, you know. At least after uh, after August five, what we are consistently seeing is that Pakistan is also unable to frame it as as a bilateral issue, and India consistently says that this is not an issue between um, between us. This is a this is a issue that we have with Kashmiris, and we'll sort it with them. Um, so this duality of how uh, how the concerns and 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 the, and the questions of Kashmiri human rights are addressed. Um, within the international system is actually um, quite quite a big issue right now. Um, So for that reason, uh, to actually locate Kashmiris in a a certain framework where they can come and they can represent themselves and their ideas and their history and their politics, um, it's important that there needs to be an international space that can engage with Kashmiris as independent actors. Um, like, for instance, in Palestinian case, we've seen that happening with the BDS movement, like speakers uh, Ben uh, was just speaking about, but in Kashmir's case, uh, it's, it's, it's very much um, intermixed with the politics of what the two countries bring to the UK, and I think it's very much important right now to disconnect from that. Um, and speaking to that, I, I want to talk about the 18, uh, 1857 um, shawl weavers' revolt against the Dogra regime, which was installed by by the British. Um, this is the first instance or the historic moment in Kashmiri history where um, the shawl weavers, who were organized, came out and and def- and basically opposed the taxation laws of the Dogra regime. And that was the first instance of the formation of Kashmiri nationalist identity, or at least trying to talk about Kashmiris as a separate, um, uh, or somehow having aspirations that are different from India and Pakistan. And of course, uh, to remember quite well that in 1860, 1857, we didn't have India or Pakistan in the first place. Um, and when you go back and trace that history of shawl weavers who came out and who, um, in opposition to the very brutal taxation laws, they they cut their thumbs, and they said, "We're not going to weave shawls anymore because uh, of the oppression that is faced by the the the, the labor uh, the laborers in that industry." Um, perhaps that first instance itself shows that Kashmiris um, have consistently organized themselves in a sort of a alternative worldview or an alternative uh, level a question of solidarity a question of uh, sovereignty. Where they see themselves as separate from Indian Pakistan. And um, if we look at what happened after 1947, if we look at the international resolution in the UN, um, the, the, the consistent need uh, or the consistent pressure that needed to be put on the international bodies to recognize that Kashmiris may have something different to say, um have been have been ignored. And I guess like at this stage, it's it's Fundamentally important within the solidarity circles to recognize that Kashmiris do have opinions about their history, about their culture, about their um, political future. Um, And those also need to be uh, included within the international culture and not just perhaps not just not just be spoken for, but also be allowed to speak for themselves. Uh, I think this is uh, an essential essential point that I wanted to uh, bring home. Um, In addition to that, what we see after 1947 is those Kashmiris who did try to engage with the Indian system um, tried to articulate a Kashmiri ethno-nationalist movement or rather a nationalist movement which consisted of various ethnicities who have been living in the Kashmir region and tried to use the Indian constitution to get to a point where they can um, pass a, a certain referendum in favor of Kashmir's independence. And what we see is like in 1953, Kashmir's then prime minister is arrested and put in jail for about 20 years for not being able to, uh, you know, and, and not allowed to actually articulate his wishes or the wishes of his people in a different way. So even those people who those Kashmiris who have engaged with the Indian constitution and the system have repeatedly faced a sort of uh, you know marginalization over a period of time. And the way Hindu settler colonialism, I would call it, or Hindutva-oriented settler colonialism has worked, it has worked by excluding um, Kashmiris. Of course, it's not a very different process than what happens in Palestine. You know, It's basically um, the whole idea of Hindu nation is constructed on the graveyard of Kashmiris, like where Kashmiris are non-existent, dehumanized subjects who cannot seek um, rights and and who don't have even international systems um, or international procedures in uh, you know um, accessible to them. So with with what's happening right now, per se, perhaps like uh, what is important to understand is that it's not happening just after August five. It has happened. For last seventy years, and even if we go back to the British-installed Dogra rule, which was a Hindu government installed on a ninety-five percent Kashmiri Muslim population, um, you repeatedly see the same kind of pattern of Hindu cultural domination and Hindu um, civilizational domination on Kashmiri Muslims who did, who do, and have had a very separate um, cultural identity from India and Pakistan both. Uh, As we all understand and know that Kashmir was one of the main uh, trade routes on on the ancient Silk Roads and it had its own identity of engaging with a lot of Central Asian uh, regions and uh, Central Asian countries. Um, And those engagements and those transactions have been completely cut off after 1947 due to the formation of the line of control that has divided Kashmir into two parts, one with India and one with Pakistan. And uh, both sides, Kashmiris, are unable to travel and meet each other. And this active line of control, I guess, is also important to mention, is one of the most brutal uh, line of controls. Um, The armies of both countries are stationed there, so it's not a... Permanent border—it's uh, something that changes. It waxes and wanes based on how much the fighting has been going on. Um, and the fate of some Kashmiris living along the line of control is that they may wake up uh, today as Indians and tomorrow as Pakistanis. So uh, that shows how active, uh, active the occupation and the settler colonialism is in the region and how it affects the ordinary Kashmiris. Um, their sense of geography, the sense of history, and how they want to present themselves um, within the international system. And uh, perhaps what has happened just from last year then is a kind of a paradigm shift in terms of like whatever engagement Kashmiris had before with the the Indian system was completely sidelined. On August 5th, they had arrested the Indian government arrested all pro-India uh, politicians and launched them in jails. And of course, not to speak of those who are um, uh, articulating political freedom in a different way. Um, and, and what has happened and what I want to leave you with the thought is that um, this sort of marginalization and dehumanization is increasingly uh, turning into a cultural domination where Kashmiris are only allowed to speak about their politics or political future if it is articulated in a language that is approved by the Hindu or Hindutva nationalist forces in India. Um, that the government will be um, run from the central New Delhi itself is, is, is quite threatening. Uh, to understand or even imagine what the future holds for Kashmiris who are living inside the valley, well. um, I don't have much time, but I would be happy to speak more later. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much, Insha. so much uh, important sort of historical lessons in, in your talk that I really appreciated, and also a really important um, imperative to the solidarity community. Um, here. So thank you for that. And again, a lot to bring up uh, and and pick up in the question and answer period. Um, So last and certainly not least, we're joined by Professor Dibyesh Anand, who teaches at London's Westminster University and is the author of uh, Hindu nationalism in India and the politics of uh, fear. So I'm really looking forward to to hearing what what you have to say, Dibyesh, and welcome to the panel. Uh,
4: Thank you so much for having me here. I mean, I'll follow on from what other speakers have been uh, talking about. I mean, we take into account a shared understanding that something is happening in Kashmir and Palestine and um, with Palestinians and Kashmir. That's not fair. Right. That's unfair. That's about justice, it's about freedom. In essence, we are taking that for granted. Now, the question for us, I mean, and of course, there are a lot of similarities. I'll talk about that. But think of India. So India is a product of British colonization and a resistance to it. Right. So India emerges as a post-colonial country on the grounds that colonization is wrong, colonial rule by outsiders is wrong, and therefore what we need is we need to build a new country that's fair and equal for all citizens. That's the idea behind India. That's the idea behind any post-colonial country. But what happens, of course, is that while India becomes post-colonial, what takes place with every Kashmir is is there's a full-fledged colonization. So even before settler colonialism, there was colonialism in terms of India and uh, Kashmir. It starts with 1947 when, of course, Kashmir, that was an erstwhile princely state, gets divided between India and Pakistan, divided between, and as pointed out, that is how India and Pakistan saw and, and portrayed, and that is how international community of states, I'm not saying international community of people, I'm talking international community of states because international community is essentially of, of a community of states. They see it as a uh, a sort of property dispute between India and Pakistan. And in this context, while India and Pakistan are quite different, their approach to Kashmir is quite different from each other, right? There's a commonality and that commonality remains one of, it's a property dispute. So that's how they managed. And they haven't been very successful in that because over time, and as Insha pointed out, that's how majority of people or states in the world see. It's about India and Pakistan. So whenever there's an uprising in Kashmir, whenever there's incidents of, uh, let's say conflict in Kashmir or not, people dying. People say oh, India and Pakistan should talk to each other and solve it. Now, the challenge with that, of course, is as others uh, have pointed out, complete erasure, erasure of Kashmir from international discourse. But uh, that's what India covered, and others have covered in terms of Palestine. So, what I would like to focus on: what is happening in India that allows Indians to do it, but also live with it. Right? So, do it and live with it. Of course, in recent times, we find a rise of Hindu majoritarianism. In India. So Hindu majority Hindu is the idea that because India is Hindu majority, India should primarily be a Hindu nation, and because it should be a Hindu nation who are they are enemies that we have to tackle. So and in my own work I've looked at the ways in which Hindu nationalists argue that the enemies of India slash Hindu nation are Muslims, Christians, two large uh, religious minorities, communists, secularists, and in the past they would also westernize media. Now, that westernized media discourse is now gone because more or less media is in the pocket of the Hindu right wing, right? So now it's essentially Muslims, Hindu, sorry, Muslims, Christians, communists, and secularists. So who are the, you know, Muslims and Christians are minorities. Communists are also seen as outsiders, left-wing, who are enemies. So who are the secularists? According to them, secularists are those Hindus who refuse to see India as Hindu nation, right? So Hindu nationalism, it's a, it has been there for almost 100 years. And the basis of Hindu nationalism is an organization called Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, RSS. And RSS is essentially a fascist organization that's there since 1920s, And it is a fascist organization everywhere possible, right? Now, it has been there, but it was not that strong. Yes, what you had was secular nationals of India had Hindu elements, no doubt. But it was still not Hindu in the same way. And in fact, it was seen as enemy by Hindu, nation, Hindu nationals. What we have seen in recent years is a certain power of Hindu nationalists. So the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, is a Hindu nationalist and he's a proud Hindu nationalist. He doesn't even sort of say that, oh, you know, this, that, liberal. He doesn't even use the liberal language. They're very clear we are Hindu nationalists. And they have a particular agenda. They do want to convert India into a Hindu nation. How do they do it? They do it by showing Muslims the right place. Right places basically should be subservient. So in practice, what's happening in India is conversion of muslims from citizens to subjects right so something that's quite similar to what happens with the, the palestinians who are forced to be israeli citizens right something along those lines so that's the way but an important aspect and of course kashmir is not the only factor for them kashmir is only one of the many things so they want to essentially make all muslims and christians in india subservient and of course defeat seculars kashmir is in a way the dress rehearsal what they did last year in Kashmir, while removing the de jure autonomous statehood, we are saying de jure, not de facto. De facto, Kashmir was already an, practically annexed by India, right? So they had hardly any autonomy in reality. But at least in theory, they had some autonomy. Even that was taken away. And the question is not that the autonomy was taken away, but it was taken away without consent. And what we find, of course, is what is in, how do we describe any kind of political rule that governs a population, without any consent, it's colonization, colonialism, so that's what we find, but what we find in August 2019, of course, is a next phase in colonization, not a new colonization, and what has happened in India, and we can look at India and Kashmir, is that while Hindu nationalists are, in a way, being extreme in India, and doing it with you know, blatantly, without any shame, India was already colonial in Kashmir since 1947, so, While in India, this whole debate about secularism, Hindu nationalism, and all of that, for Kashmiris, there's hardly any difference between secular Indian nationalists, right-wing Hindu nationalists, and for that matter, left nationalists. So the only difference would be, the left Indian nationalists say that Kashmir belongs to us, but they should be given some rights. The secularists will say, Kashmir belongs to us because the Muslim majority, and we as secular country need a Muslim majority state to show that we are secular. But they have no right for, to ask for self-determination. And Hindu nationalists who say that, of course, Kashmiris have no right to self-determination. But the moment they ask for any rights, we have the right to dehumanize them. So that's the difference. But from Kashmiris perspective, it has been full-fledged colonization. That full-fledged colonization, I mean, in my own work, I've been looking at it written. And a lot of Kashmiris have been pointing out its political rule, military occupation. So military occupation is a very small but important part, right? Its political rule it's paternalism. And this is where, I mean, we have to bear in mind that, and we know it, that colonization is never about simply colon- It's uh, never about violence, use of violence. It's not simply about political rule, territorial control, economic control, social control, cultural transformation, and all of that. It's also about representation. So, representation of Kashmiris as Muslims and therefore separatists, Muslims who are victims of Pakistani separatism, Muslims and therefore terrorists muslims and they were threat to india right so this is the kind of representation and so islamophobia is at the heart of it but not only that and this is something that to be mentioned the current uh, so the erasure of kashmir even politically uh, last year or attempted erasure of kashmir politically in terms of within indian constitution right and conversion of kashmir from aut- uh, autonomous state in theory to something that's complete union territory and therefore directly ruled by Delhi was practically justified in the name of liberation, right? And it was justified in the name of largely taking revenge for what, according to Hindu nationalists, Kashmiri Muslims did to Kashmiri Pandits, Kashmiri Hindus. So in a way, Indian state and Hindu nationalists portray themselves as defenders of the original inhabitant of Kashmir, the Kashmiri Pandits. That's how they portray, of course, that's not the reality, but that's how they portray themselves, right? That they are the defenders of the minority. They're the defenders of women. They're defenders of uh, the, all all our kind of minority. So there's attempted demonization of Kashmiris, Kashmiri Muslims in particular, and valorization of Kashmiri Hindus to then say Kashmiri Hindus are victims, Hindus are victims, and we need to take revenge. And that's how they are functioning. In all of that, what of course happens is there's acceleration of, dehumanization that acceleration of violence now if you look at resistance in Kashmir, resistance Kashmir ranges from non-violence to violence right ranges from what would be seen as secular to quite religious but what indian nationalists and this indian nationalists not only hindu so indian hindu and indian secular nationalists, have been good at they've been good at reducing the entire gamut of kashmiri resistance to Islamic resistance and Islamic violent resistance, according to them. Why do they do it? Because it suits the agenda. It suits the agenda of portraying themselves as victims of not being a colonizer, but victims of Islamic extremism. And that Islamic extremism essentially would imply that, oh look, we are like Israel, like US, like West, and to an extent like China, like every other country in the world, we are victims of muslim separatism muslim chauvinism muslim extremism and islamism and india has been good at that in fact india got better at it than us since 1990. So what us did post 9 11 india had been doing that since 1990. so from very beginning uh, let's say when there was an armed uprising 1989-19 Kashmir, kashmir right That said armed uprising had elements that would be seen as secular elements and called for independence from both india and pakistan and those who were more religious oriented and wanted to join pakistan right all kinds of the range. India reduced everything to saying that it's about joining Pakistan, it's about Islamism. Okay? So that's what the game they have been playing. Now, this whole argument made sometimes by uh, those who are solidarity with Kashmir, even Kashmir, sometimes some Kashmir themselves, that what India is doing is what Israel has been doing. What Kashmiri Muslims are facing is what Palestinians are facing. While politically this might be useful, but we also have to be wary of it. We have to be wary because, and this is, What India has been doing now, and Israel has been doing, but India has been doing regardless of what Israel had been doing. So even when India was very pro-Palestine, remember in 1950s, 60s, 70s, India was quite pro-Palestine compared to being pro-Israel. But India was doing exactly the same in Kashmir. And therefore, while solidarity between kashmiris and Palestinians and pro-Palestine and pro-Kashmir movement is important, we have to bear in mind that India was the original colonial power in Kashmir. From 1947, regardless of what Israel does and did, right? And the second argument that what Kashmir is experiencing, what Palestine has been experiencing. Kashmir has been experiencing since 1947. In fact, one could say, why not have a discussion of what Kashmir is experiencing is what Uyghurs are experiencing or what Tibetans are experiencing or what Kurdish people are experiencing. What Palestinians are experiencing, what Kurds are experiencing in Turkey or Syria or what uh, Uyghurs are experiencing. What we find, of course, is in international arena, there's more discussion now of Palestine and Kashmir, where there's almost a sense that Palestinians are these favoured, I know it's to say, but favoured victims, and we need to have our approach or our movement that's like them to get international attention. We know that what Palestine is suffering is gross, but that's how it's approached. But there's a very limited discussion on what Palestinians or Kashmir are facing, whether it be Tibetans or Buddhists, or Uyghurs who are Muslims but occupied by China, right and colonized by China with concentration camps and everything, or by Kurds. And why is that? There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that, of course, is the geopolitics. Geopolitics, because that's where we have to be careful who supports whom and who can speak for whom. So, for instance, talking of Kurds and Palestinians would might upset Erdogan, right? who otherwise speaks for Palestine. Talking of Uyghurs and Kashmiri will upset China. China is an ally of Pakistan, which is seen as an ally by some Kashmiris. So, you see... Geopolitics is very complicated, but that does not imply that we as activists, as scholars, do not at least recognize similarities in terms of colonial projects taking place in different parts of the world. And those parts of the world include Israel and Palestine, you have India and even Pakistan to an extent in Kashmir, you've got and with Uyghurs and Tibetans, you've got uh, Turkey, you've got various other uh, countries, Ethiopia with the Ogaden people. So we have to recognize that we are dealing with the world which is technically, in name, post-colonial, but in reality, very colonial, right? And when it's very colonial, we need to acknowledge and recognize what are the different approaches taking place in different parts of the world. And when we have a situation where, let's say, India, Israel, China, US, and even Turkey, they learn from each other while competing with each other sometimes and sometimes collaborating with each other, there's also a need for the victims, right? uh, the co- colonized people, to have solidarity with each other and for those who support colonized people to have solidarity with each other. So coming back to India and Kashmir again, an important aspect is that India is facing a major crisis. Right? India is facing a crisis where even the nominal democracy that exists right, is in jeopardy because India is facing a real threat of not only fascism being in power, but fascism becoming the hegemonic ideology. So what Indians need to realize, right, who didn't care about Kashmir, that what happened to Kashmir is happening, will happen, will happen to large parts of India. Not all Indians, but many Indians, right? So at least even from the self-interest perspective of, Kash- uh, of Indians, I do think it's very important for Indians to rethink, question their own state's uh, approach towards uh, Kashmir, be, in a way, sorry to Kashmir for what had been happening, and ultimately build a solidarity movement which is not about, oh, we should do it because it hurts us also. So that could be a start. But it's very much about that all human beings in the world are equal. And what India has been doing is colonizing. And in, in we need to, to be genuinely post-colonial. We need to challenge dehumanization, violence, paternalism, everything. And we need to have solidarity with all those who have colonized, Kashmir and others. Thank you very much.
1: Fantastic, thank you so much, uh, Dibyesh, and I, I really appreciate the points that that you made on the sort of limits of the parallels. And I think going back to some of the um, some of what you've said and the other speakers have said about the principles of solidarity, it's not about kind of trying to draw direct parallels, but all but our sort of movements need to have those principles of international solidarity with a mind towards the sort of global uh, um, political stage. So very very appreciative of, of your talk and of the points. Um, And thanks to all of the um, speakers, I I think it was a really um, fantastic presentation. And there's some really good questions that we have in um, the box. So I'm gonna move to those questions now. And I think, yes, we're gonna bring all of the speakers um, uh, up for this. So um, the, I'm just kind of looking at my notebook here. The, um, actually uh, the first question I wanna go with is a sort of specific, question. I think this would be for Incha and Dibyesh, and it was um, just a question about the disenfranchisement of the marginalized through the NRC and the CAA and and if you can also tell us um, about what what is the NRC and the CAA that would be very appreciated. Thanks.
4: Okay, I'll go ahead with this. So, NRC, so National Register for Citizens. So, in India, this whole discourse around, especially Hindutva, Hindu nationals have been putting forward discourse that they have a large number of infiltrators, so foreigners. So essentially, they mean Bangladeshi Muslims, right? There's a demonization of Bengali speaking Muslims as not Indians, but as Bangladeshis. So, this whole register, they were creating a new register for citizens, right? Which would imply identify who's a citizen, who's not a citizen. Right. now india has also passed law where if you are a non muslim it you could be hindu christian uh, parsi, uh, parsi there, but uh, um, sikh and others from the neighboring countries of india but in india you are technically then entitled to citizenship so basically there's a move by hindu nationalists to disenfranchise uh, we're talking of 10 million one crore it's a, a, a million millions of uh, bengali speaking muslims by identifying them as non-citizens. Now, what do they do with it? What do you do with, let's say, 10 million people who are now no longer a citizen of your country? Because India, unlike many countries, does not have has not signed Geneva Convention on Refugees, right? So you can't be a refugee there also. So what you do is, of course, put them in concentration camps. Okay, I'm using concentration camps. India will say it's a detention camp. But these are detention camps like the Uyghurs. These are detention camps where you have put in there and you're never out. So we are dealing with a situation, therefore, in parts of India where there will be a large number of Muslims who will be recognized as not citizens, and either they pay money somehow and through corruption, they get some kind of citizenship, or they will remain within India in a limbo without citizenship, but they can't be sent back anywhere because, of course, they have no other home except India. So that's a move of Indian government. Thanks very much for that. I'll go now
1: to a question. and in, actually Insha did you want to add anything uh on that point before I go to the next question?
0: No that's fine. I think uh Debbie has covered really
1: well. Great. Okay, thanks. Um so the next question is is um a question about our situation here in the UK um and uh it's about the Labour Party capitulations on solidarity with Palestinians and uh solidarity with Kashmiris so so to um, parallel capitulations, I guess you you could say. So if if I can go to um, to Yara and Ben um, first, and then move back to um, Incheon and Dibyesh, and this is a in some ways about our the um, the terrain of our solidarity here in the UK.
3: Do you want to start, Yara? Or... Okay, I'll start. Um... I mean, look, what, what I would say, first of all, and I understand the basis for the question. And is there a legitimate fear um, about in relation to Palestine, um, particularly um, a shift of direction um, in relation to policy for Palestine? And the part of the context of that is that the last two Labour Party conferences have passed good motions in relation to um, Palestine and calling for action on the part of the Labour Party. Yes, there's a legitimate fear. I would say at the moment, it'd be interesting to hear what DBS and Inshall say, that in terms of direct policy and reversals, at the moment we've seen that probably more um, specifically in relation to policy on Kashmir than we have on Palestine, but there is a concern. Um, and that part of that, it is unavoidable in answering this question, um, not to identify a specific part of that concern is about how the narratives of anti-Semitism, how the adoption of um, the IHRA definition has raised concern about the stifling within the Labour Party of the ability to speak out on Palestine and that is a real uh, and significant threat. Um, But in terms of at the moment actual reversals on policy we haven't seen them but there are worrying. Uh, Signs. So, what what do we do about it? I think someone said, "How do we address this?" There's no. If there was a simple answer, that would be fantastic. There are um, But first of all, we do challenge. We have to challenge and respond to uh, the attempts to uh, try uh, to delegitimize and exclude certain um, narratives uh, about uh, what Israel is doing and calls for action. Uh, and part of the way we do that. Uh, is by direct challenge but also uh, by being clear about our narrative so one thing I would say for example there is an attempt to suggest that if you frame what Israel is doing as racist if you make analogies to apartheid then that's inherently anti-semitic and part of the way we challenge that is by providing clear information why such narratives not only legitimate but accurate and I would give a plug here I think this can be posted in the chat a PSC is hosting throughout October on successive Thursdays, a series of webinars that will unpick precisely how the label of apartheid applies. And we have a range of excellent speakers, including Yara. The second thing we do, we have to operate strategically. We look at where are the bases still of support and power and leverage we have within the Labour Party. My assessment would still be, although we're seeing changes in the dynamics at the base, uh, amongst ordinary members of the Labour Party, there is still an intuitive support for Palestine. We see that manifested in many ways. And so we have to channel that. Uh, and part of the way we do that is not get into a defensive s- statue where most of our com- t- conversation becomes about defending ourselves against narratives of anti-Semitism, but the positive promotion of policy on Palestine and encouraging that through giving... Uh, appropriate motions to CLPs. The other area of significant strength we have in the UK uh, is, is support within the unions. Uh, Twelve major trade unions are affiliated PSC of Past Good Policy on Palestine. Um, they are under attack at the moment. There is a definitive attempt to get unions to row back. That has to be resisted. And an example of what we do proactively at the next TUC, so there is a mini-TUC conference happening in September. There's a motion that will be um, proposed there that we expect to be passed that takes forward the narrative and apartheid and reinforces the TUC's uh, commitment uh, to take action uh, to uh, oppose complicity uh, with Israeli settlements and occupation. That's an important motion and that's part of how we tackle this attempt to stifle our voices.
1: Thanks, Ben. Yara, did you want to come in on that? I think I'll just add just one point. Um, I'm not so involved in in
2: British politics um, because I live in Palestine, um, but you know I do have some background there, obviously accent. Um, but I would say this: uh, the, I think the Labour Party um, leadership has not just capitulated on uh, uh, on solidarity with Palestinians and Kashmiris. Um, I would say that they've capitulated on a whole host of issues. Um, I would say that they've abandoned so many communities and groups um, who saw some kind of hope in jeremy Corbyn's labour. Um, so I think it's important to widen that that discussion and how do we how do we address that? I would say is not to abandon those those radical networks and groups that were formed as a result of uh, of the revitalization of that that the, the politics of um, that, that Corbin um, supported um, I would say to refocus energies and rebuild the radical left outside of establishment politics and I really think this is how we convinced the masses there was such a such from what I could see from afar there was such beautiful uh, collaboration and communication and networking between so many groups um, with the hope that there could be a real radical change within the Labour Party. That might not be possible but those groups still do exist and they exist outside of the Labour Party and I think we have to remind ourselves of that.
1: Thank you, thanks for that. Um, Incha, did you did you want to speak on this point?
0: Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I I have already had one chance to speak to um, some of the groups earlier, like earlier this year in UK, so I am slightly familiar with what happens with the politics um, of representation of Kashmiris within the circles of left in UK. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges is, of course, to get past the ideological bickering between Indians and Pakistanis and or whoever else wants to represent Kashmir. Um, I guess the voices of Kashmiris get really stifled and and they aren't really heard. Um, And for me as an academic, as a scholar, my interest has been that there needs to be more engagement with Kashmir's regional history. Um, It's a... it's actually its own position outside of India and Pakistan's imagination of itself, uh, because that's what will help us to then articulate a narrative which is not necessarily, you know, very easily bracketed under A B or C, you know, like it's Islam, like, I mean, the narratives of Islamophobia where they'd be like, okay, these people, they are all supported by Pakistan. They're all jihadists or they're all terrorists. Um, they don't have their own standing for what they demand. And I think it's important internationally to look at Kashmiris um, outside of those, those frameworks and actually shift uh, the narrative from what it has become as in a very dormant uh, or a very uh, sort of back and forth between, between the right wing and the left wing. Um, and I think that can also create a possibility for a fresh conversation about uh, movements and solidarity per se um, in general. Um, and speaking back to what Ben and Yara are saying about, in in case of Palestine, I think um, increasingly it's 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 difficult to speak in a language that you can get clubbed under, you know, being anti this or anti that. Or um, I guess there needs to be a more cohesive and comprehensive uh, narrative for the left, which speaks about anti-Semitism in the same way as speaking. Or Palestinians, or Kashmiris, or uh, Uyghurs or or uh, let's say Kurds, um, without necessarily, you know, talking up, you know, without seeing them as issues that are um, against each other or in really like outside of the interests of each other. Um, because what I see is that the solidarity is also forming within these neoliberal world orders and the actors that are, you know, the key that they have the key role. For instance, you look at. Uh, the relationship between Israel and India, it's it's alarming, like the kind of uh, arms deals, the kind of interaction, the kind of uh, training and capacity building of each other and handling and tackling uh, issues of Palestinians and Kashmiris. I think there's a scope to have a much more contextualized and broader understanding of Kashmiris and Palestinians and other oppressed minorities in the region. and, and the possibility I clearly just see within left and not any other force. Uh, so I guess those are some of the points I think that needs to be considered in UK as well.
1: Thank yeah, thank you for that. Very useful. And yeah. um, Dibyash, if I can That's go good. to you now, yeah. and I'd, yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on, on this. Labour
4: Party. Right, I mean, there was a withdrawal. Now, of course, if I mean. We, we, we often talk of pro-lab, this lab uh, lobby, pro-that lobby. I mean, if, if there's one uh, ethnic minority group that's very electri- electorally, very powerful here, that's the Indians, right? People like myself. So when we're here and what is happening, of course, is but there are all kinds of Indians. The are Indians like myself, Indian origin, who are very clear that if you're fighting racism here as a victim, then you have to fight racism in India. If you're fighting about um, equal rights, you have to fight for equal rights of Kashmiris. Broadly along those lines. And of course, then there are Indians who would say that, of course, we are victims here, but we are the uh, Hindu, we support Hindu nation. So what has happened is within Labour Party, there have been a mobilization of pro-Narendra Modi Indians and making it very clear to Labour Party that you will lose again and again if unless you sort of sort with, uh, work with it. So in a way, I'm not very harsh with Labour Party. I can see what they're doing, but I don't think it's going to work because now they are stereotyping and imagining what Indians want. But in that process, they're ignoring Indian Muslims. They let's forget Kashmiri. There's um, Indian Kashmiri Muslims, right? Our uh, Kashmiri Muslims colonized by India, but they're ignoring in people like myself. Now, one thing to bear in mind with Labour Party, and I end with that because there's no answer to it, as Insha pointed or hinted, and this is something we have to bear in mind that even the Labour Party resolution that was pro-Kashmiri. I mean, if you scratch beneath that surface, you realize that it was not actually pro-Kashmir resolution that was very clearly driven by particular agenda. And that agenda in, in UK context and UK is the worst place of all the countries in the world other than India and Pakistan, where the Indian Pakistani lobbies play a very crucial role in shaping the discourse. So a lot of time within Labour Party, you have a resolution that will say pro-Kashmir, but you scratch beneath the surface, they're very clear. It's India or Pakistan. So, you know, that's largely about Pakistan. And then the pro-India lobby does the other way around. But sadly, unlike Palestine's solidarity campaign and other things, I think there's a lot to be learned from Palestinians and others in how to mobilize here. But and I'll end with this. One challenge I know through, let's say, pro-independence Kashmiris based here, they, faces, they face, of course, the tragedy of what's happening and suffering of Kashmiri Muslims in India, by Indian occupation. But they also suffer problems here. By the pro-Pakistanis, where they're accused of being secular, they're accused of being not pro-Pakistan, hence somehow pro-India, and therefore demonized and marginalized. So there's a lot of that also taking place. And I do, and that's beyond the labor politics election, but that's a political British Kashmir as well. Right.
1: Thank you for that. That's really that's a really um, important contribution, I think, to the um, thinking about the framing and understanding it. Um there's There's um, a few more questions that came up, uh, many of which were sort of addressed by the speakers. Um, I wanted to, if possible, pull something out from from everybody, which is a point actually that that Yara sort of started out by, um, which is a bit of a question of framing. Um, But I heard all of the speakers actually um, say you know um occupation is a part of this but there's an an issue of the larger framing um and likewise you know as, as a, a sort of parallel question um the the sort of limits and possibilities of of international law so um for solidarity movements for the liberation movements themselves um how to navigate that question of when is um international law the base of what um of of what is being demanded um and when is it sort of um, a, a tool that can reflect some of it? So, um, sorry, that's big questions, but I, th- I heard little kernels of it in what everybody said. So I'd love to hear more. And maybe Yara, I could start with you since you're the one who sort of put the question on the table.
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks for the question, Rivka. Um, Yeah, so I think there are limits of international law that that we need to recognise, and I think international law should play a part uh, in our struggle uh, for liberation, particularly when it makes it difficult for the settler colonial regime um, to continue violating um, Palestinian rights. But I also think that we need to have a reckoning with it, especially in the Palestinian case. You look um, back at our experience, and we have yielded very uh, few results from, from international law, and that's not to undermine the continuous struggle and efforts of, of Palestinian human rights activists and organizations, which has been uh, phenomenal. But unfortunately, there's been a process in which Palestinian civil society and many Palestinian organizations have been forced to adopt international law as our framework because of this uh, um, um, donor uh, atmosphere in which organized Palestinian organizations now can only survive with uh, with foreign funding and have to compete for that foreign funding and that foreign funding not only demands um, international law as a framework it actually goes beyond that and demands a lot more things from Palestinians which actually violates international law so it's a very um uh, vicious circle. Um, so it's very, it's a difficult one, but I think it should only play, um, you know, it should only be one tool in the toolbox uh, which Palestinians use to fight for liberation, particularly because international law has a very limiting discourse when it comes to Palestine. International law renders Palestine as, you know, the West Bank in Gaza completely um, ignores uh, 48 Palestinians, it ignores the fact that there was a Palestine from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. International law also doesn't provide um, uh, for, for tools to fight against settler colonialism. There is very limited, uh, um, uh, limit, very limited discussion about settler colonialism in, in international law. Actually indigenous people um, as defined in international law um, should have their rights protected so long as it doesn't affect the settler colonial structure. Um, So I think there are serious limits. I think we have to recognise that. I don't think it means abandoning international law, but I think there has to be a reckoning for sure.
1: Thank you for that. And thanks, um, Yara, for for bringing that question of framing up at the beginning. Um, Dibyash, if I can go to you next, because I know you, I think you're teaching at two, aren't you?
4: Yeah. So in terms of, uh, again, uh, broadly international law, international norms, I'll focus on international law, international and how they help or hinder What Kashmiris want, I mean, that's what I thought I'd focus on. In terms of, again, we we talked of international community. International community is community of states, primarily through United Nations. The UN had passed a resolution in 1947 and 48, two resolutions, which essentially said that India and Pakistan, they do acknowledge self-determination, but solve it amongst themselves, right? So so, uh, something along those lines. So what India and Pakistan did around that time was, They spoke the language of self-determination to an extent, but very limited extent, but made it about who should own entire Jammu and Kashmir. And Jammu and Kashmir, of course, includes not only Kashmir, but other regions also. Now, in a way that international law, if you focus on largely about states, then it becomes about human rights. And of course, no uh, right to sovereignty allows states to deny human rights. So that's part of it. So the international law then becomes an ally for the Kashmiris. But it does not become an ally for the aspiration of those Kashmiris who may want independence from both states. Right. So there's the international law part, there's international law. And third factor we have to bear in mind is the, the region, China. China is in the region. That's in in the neighborhood. And parts of Jammu and Kashmir is occupied by China also. So you're dealing with a very complicated conflict. I know Palestinian conflict is already very complicated with so many actors. But you're also dealing another complicated conflict where you've got two emerging powers, India and China, right? Very powerful. They're huge. They're big. They have large sizes. Both with very strong sense of being victims of colonization and victims of Western imperialism, right? And yet willing to implement it, right? So now what the international law can become a life for kashmiris when it comes to human rights and it can be because and i had this image which i wanted to show to you and this is one of the many images i mean you can see a calendar behind me also it's from association of parents of disappeared persons so between eight to ten thousand kashmiris have been disappeared by the indian state in last uh, 20 years you have got people who have been blinded and this is the case of mass blinding in india so india uses pellet guns to blind people Torture, extrajudicial killing, rape, uh, use of sexual torture, all kinds of human rights abuses. So, law, international law, and even technically domestic law of India should be an ally for Kashmiri, right? The problem is in terms of Indian law, and this is where India gets away by being a democracy, which is also similar to uh, Israel, again, right? The only democracy in the Middle East, kind of. Now, in case of India, now, normally democracies. A concept through which people ask for more rights from the state in case of India and Kashmir democracy, is the facade used by India to deny any rights to Kashmir by saying we are a democracy. So the moment you say to India, oh, but you know, how come you have these laws that allow you to do these things? They'll say it can go to court, go to the court because we have a court system. Fine. Kashmiris can go to the court, but they never get justice. They've never got justice. So out of eight to 10,000 Kashmiris disappeared by the Indian state. And we are talking those for whom there's record, by the way, right? Not a single case where the courts have done anything. So what I would say is, to an extent, rule of law can be an ally for Kashmiris and other people who optimize, but we have to bear in mind that colonial colonization was legal. Even I would say Holocaust was legal when it comes to what Germany did, right? So according to them, that was law. What China does with the Uyghurs and Tibetans is legal. So I don't think beyond a point international law or domestic law can be the main uh, mechanism through which people can get their own freedom. So what we need to bear in mind, of course, is the basic idea that all people equal, all people have right to be free, all people have right to govern themselves. As, as simple as that. And so long as that's not happening, and that's not happening with Palestinians, Kurds, Uyghurs, Kashmiris, we need to fight for a better world, just world, and more free world. On that note, I'll end here. And I know I have to go, so I'll say bye to you all and thank you very much, right? Thank
1: you. Thank you. Yeah. In fact, I think uh, we have two minutes left. So I, I want to give um, Insha and Ben, if you have. Um just a sort of closing statement and then I just wanted to um, say something more about how people can continue the discussion. Um, Insha, do you want to? Uh,
0: yeah, sure. Um, I think um, I just wanted to end up with a couple of uh, points that I have um, in my mind. And those are mostly to do with like how, you know, how we think outside of these colonized geographies is very different from what happens inside of, let's say, Palestine or Kashmir. Um, When we look at, for instance, law, again, speaking back to what Dupesh was saying, when you look at the legal system in in India, and and of course the one that was in place before uh, August 5, like the court systems and everything, um, they are increasingly politicized, and they are used to the benefit of the oppressor and not to the oppressed. And I think um, such is also the case with the international legal system as well, like it, it can be used, it can be, uh, you know, it can be kind of uh, put, to the, put to the test of how, how much it can yield for the ones who don't have power. And I think it's very important for us to also globally um, discuss what are the avenues for people who the law has failed in the context that we're talking about. Um, I think that's uh, that's also part of the earlier point about uh, you know what the left can do in UK and how to think through these uh, difficult situations. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Such so that's a, a really a great um, point to end on. Thanks, um, Ben. I'm I'm going to give you the uh, the floor as the last commentator of the session.
3: Okay. Thank you. Um, I'll I'll just finish with one thing. One quick comment. Um, And I'll concur with what's being said, I think, about the limitations uh, of law, in particular, what Yara said about its uh, international laws application in Palestine. It speaks to certain aspects of the injustices that have been visited on the Palestinian people, uh, but not to all. And of course, we also have the problem, um, which is why people become frustrated. With using the lever of international law, about how is it implemented and what are the dynamics of power that exists within the institutions that are there to implement uh, international law? My view on that, and I, I guess this is as a broader thing, that in our campaigning and how we use international law, we need to think strategically. We recognise the limitations, but we recognise where uh, it adds weight and takes uh, the agenda of justice forward. An example might be a campaign we're running at the moment to ask local government pension schemes to divest and we want to talk to them about all of the companies they invest in that are complicit but we recognize that that conversation can begin and have energy when we are focused on those that have been identified by the UN database as being um, complicit we don't regard that as anything like an exhaustive list but we know we have leverage there we know we have st- strategic leverage and my final remark I think and the importance of events like this and maybe it's going back to something DBS said at the beginning of his remarks, um, you know, we use international law strategically, but we are um, appealing to broader notions, to notions of justice, to fundamental notions of rights. We recognise the synergy in our uh, in our causes, and where we can support each other in our struggles. We recognise the differences, but the fundamental synergy in our struggles is that they are both struggles against unjust systems of power that make appeal to notions of ethno-nationalism, on the the notion that rights can be allocated to people based on ethnicity, religion, uh, culture, or race. And we oppose that fundamentally. And we do so from core principles of our common humanity. And that is what always has to be at the heart of our struggle. And where international law supports that, we use it as a leverage, but we never lose sight of those core principles.
1: Thank you, Ben. What a great, again, a great point to end on. Um, so um, we're two minutes over right now, but I wanted to thank the um, the speakers who are uh, who are still with us here. Um, it's been a really great uh, discussion, and I learned a lot and have a lot of thoughts to um, to go away with. Um, for folks that are watching, if you want to continue this discussion, there is a dedicated space on the TWT community forum, and I think there's a link. In the, um, in the chat box that shows how you can do that. Oh, or it's actually on the screen there. Um, so that's a way to kind of keep the conversation going. Um, another way, also is to attend other TWT 20 events. Um, so please do register for other events. They are filling up quickly um, and um, you can attend more events like this one and and others. Um, and you can go to the registration box, which I think is gonna show up also. Um, and lastly, um, if you enjoyed this session and uh, want to help sustain the work that TWT is doing both in this festival and beyond, please do consider supporting TWT. Um, the, again, the link um, will be posted, but it's the worldtransform.org um, slash support. Um, it's a really important way to bring us together, bring different movements together um, and, and have these conversations that we so desperately need during this time. So thanks very much for everyone who's who's been here, who's been commenting and um, hope to see you at some more TWT events.
2: View the
3: full TWT 20 program. And become a supporter today
0: to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransformed.org.